Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 130, The Diane Lane Rock and Roll Cinematic Universe. Hello and welcome to episode 130 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Chew True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So it's been a friggin' year so far, to be honest. I'm not going to get too much into it, but January and February were a bit rough for me mentally and emotionally, and I feel like I've been spending the last couple of weeks simply recovering from all that and riding the ship, so to speak. And even then, um, it took me a little while to record this. This was supposed to be out in March of 2022, and it's the first week of April when I'm recording it and releasing it. So uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a, of a, of a tough time around here. Now, granted my life is infinitesimally important compared to, I don't know, just about anybody else's. And it really haven't been like dealing with any strife or adversity. It's just been a lot of uh, down in the dumps, seasonal depression, those sorts of things. But um, you know, the, March ended up being pretty nice for the most part. Um, you know, I I am um, in, enjoy getting outdoors, and I was finally able to get outdoors and get some fresh air. I finally watched some of the DVDs that I've gotten from Netflix months ago because I'm one of the last remaining at Netflix DVD customers, and I have eight more movies to watch until I'm officially done with my entire DVD queue. And then I'm going to offload that subscription and become streaming only because um, I just can't justify the money to have DVDs laying around the house because uh, I haven't been watching them as uh, I've been streaming way more than I've been watching. So there you go. But one of the movies I watched inspired this episode. It was 1984's Streets of Fire. And I knew this was a Michael Paré movie, which in part was one of the reasons I watched it. Because I'm a fan of Eddie and the Cruisers, of course. I covered that a million years ago. Uh, but, you know, when I opened, uh, when, when, the, when the movie opened with a concert put on by uh, the character Ellen Aim, I did a double take. I was like, wait, is that Diane Lane? So I checked the description on the front of the DVD envelope, and sure enough, it was. And it wound up marking the second time in two months that I had watched a movie with Diane Lane playing a rock musician. In fact, it was the second movie made in the early 80s that featured Diane Lane playing a rock musician. The other was 1982's Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Not only that, the two movies have her playing musicians at two different stages of their careers. While they're really not related in any way, I feel like I was getting some sort of story arc here. Oh, yeah, I know, I'm stretching. But I thought that would make a good idea for an episode. So show me your ticket, get your hand stamped, because it's time for a trip into the Diane Lane Rock and Roll Cinematic Universe. You're fired. I need the money. 
Corinne Burns, what are you going to do? My name is not Corinne Burns. Oh, what is it? It's third degree Burns. I'm the lead singer and manager for the Stains. It has become clear to several thousand very young women, inspired by an unrecorded rock and roll band with see-through blouses and white stripes in their hair, that life is to be lived right now. You are going to be really good. Can't explain it. really amounts to is girl dropouts who are using the media. She said things that I've always wanted to say, and I haven't been able to. We're the stains, and we don't put out. We weren't like that, were we, Brenda? No, we weren't. You are moving so fast. You're happening so fast. You can't afford to be loyal to this guy. you still hanging around here? Why don't you just go back to wherever it was you came from? You've got a lot to learn, you little... Yeah, I don't see the world for Entertainment presents a Lou Adler film. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. DVD and soundtrack now available. Directed by Lou Adler from a script by Nancy Dowd, who is credited as Rob Morton because she and Adler had a falling out over the film's ending. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains was not a box office hit by any means. According to Box Office Mojo, it was released on October 15, 1982. It only had a limited release, and it only grossed $25,000. It grossed so little, it doesn't even rank on their list for 1982. And of course, the number one movie for 1982 was E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Now, this film is about a band called The Stains. They're made up of two sisters and a cousin. Diane Lane plays lead singer Corinne Burns with Marin Cantor as her sister Tracy, and Laura Dern plays her cousin Jessica. We open Corinne's mother has recently died from cancer, and she's living in a depressed town that's been hit hard by the early 1980s recession. She's working at a diner, and she gains a little notoriety when she mouths off to a reporter who is interviewing her about the area's economic strife, and then she mouths off to her manager and gets fired right on camera. But she does manage to plug her band. This moment emboldens Corinne, and so she is able to get the band some gigs as the opening act for two bands, a punk band called The Looters and a fading rock band called The Metal Corpses, the lead singer of whom is played by the Tubes' Fee Waybill. The only problem is the stains are terrible. They barely play instruments, and it's clear that the band is something that Corinne is clinging to as a way out of the pit of a town where they live. It does get them out of there, and they wind up on the Metal Corpse's tour bus, and that's driven by a guy whose nickname is Lawn Boy, who's also the manager, and they play every shitty dive known to man. The looters are pricks, especially their lead singer, Billy, who is played by Ray Winstone, and the Metal Corpse is completely washed up. In fact, 
their time on the tour only lasts one show because the Metal Corpse's guitarist is found dead in a bathroom from a heroin overdose, and the band ends up quitting the tour as a result. The Looters are made the headliner. The Stains are now their opening act. At the next show they play, Corinne gets on stage with a new, more provocative punk rock look. She features a see-through blouse, skunk-like hairstyle, and during their set, she makes proclamations about her being her own person, not putting out, and not selling out. The speech she gives sets off media attention, and over the course of several tour dates, the stains become a phenomenon, inspiring young girls with a feminist message. Tensions mount between the girls as well as the two bands, and Corinne and Billy get romantic in a hotel room, during which he sings her a few bars of a song he's written called Join the Professionals. The next day, the looter's agent shows up with the replacement band for the Stains because Billy had begged them to get rid of the girls during the first days of the tour, and Corinne and the girls retaliate by playing Join the Professionals on stage. The Stains sign a new contract with a new manager, and that brings them more money, and soon there's Stains merch and hundreds of fans dressed like Corinne showing up for what must be the biggest concert yet. But before the band goes on stage, Billy commandeers the mic, tells the audience that the girls have sold out, that they, the audience, have been duped, and it causes the audience to turn on Corinne when she takes the stage. Corinne fires their agent, but makes sure she gets the band's money, and the next day is interviewed on the news about her being a bad role model for girls. Billy sees her and asks her to come back on tour with them, but she refuses, and as she walks away, she sees some girls listening to the radio, the DJ declaring their record a bona fide hit. The film ends with a music video by the band, who have gone on to be successful. Now, like I said, the film didn't do much in terms of the box office. It had that limited release. It did poorly with test audiences, and they just basically shunted it to cable. It started to gain traction in 1984 when USA's Night Flight put it in their regular rotation. And it's been cited as an influential movie by members of bands such as Bikini Kill. And I imagine that its lack of an original audience at, on, at first might have to do with its troubled production. According to the film's Wikipedia page, quote, Adler and Dowd had started, had competing visions for the film right from the start. It was the ending, however, that caused them to collide. The original storyline was supposed to end with the girls across the UK proudly emulating the stains, but Kuhn says this inspiration was muted by its male director. Tensions rose as Adler demanded a rewrite, and ultimately Kuhn and Dowd walked off the set for good. I believe Kuhn was one of the... Uh, uh, other screenwriters or producers. Dowd removed her name from the script and is titled under the pseudonym Rob Morton in the final cut. The film was shelved without an ending for two years until Adler tacked on an exuberant Stains music video that gave the impression the band had achieved stardom. End quote. And honestly, you can definitely tell the music video epilogue was shot a good year or two later since the girls look older and the film looks a bit more polished than the previous 90 minutes, which... Well, the 90 minutes of the story of the film looks like something that was shot in 1980 or 81. Now, I reviewed this in brief on my other blog, The Uncollecting, a couple of months ago, and I really was just going to let it sit there until I watched Streets of Fire and got the inspiration for this episode. Ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains is an uneven film. It could have benefited from a little more story, maybe 15 more, 20 more minutes of story, because the performances are outstanding all around. 
Lane was 15 when this was filmed, and she does everything she can with it. Even though she's pretty green when it comes to acting, she really does take hold of the movie. There's a desperation in her character at the beginning because of the life she's had to lead up until this point. And Adler gives us a pretty good impression of a rundown town in Pennsylvania, as well as what it ultimately is a tough life on the road. And when the band begins to become a phenomenon, Lane plays Corinne as empowered, but clearly in way over her head. One of the key words in this film is seduction. Not in a tawdry sort of fashion, though. Corinne is seduced by the fame of becoming an icon, no matter how fleeting that is. In fact, the film reflects the popularity of early 1980s video queens like Pat Benatar and also predicts the sensation that would be Madonna a couple of years after this, is, this film was released. When the audience of young girls shows up at the Stains shows, they're dressed exactly like Corinne, to the point where after she signs the contract, the manager and record company are basically selling costume kits. Yeah, she is also seduced in that sense by Billy, but she does ultimately reject him. That's a tough scene to watch, by the way, because it's a love scene with partial nudity on Diane Lane's part, and she's still underage at that point. Um, I get the feeling that those scenes are meant to feel a little skeevy because Billy and a number of the men of the movie are kind of slime balls. I just, it was a little too explicit, taking it beyond uncomfortable for me. But there is a feminist streak going through the film that I can see would be an inspiration to the female punks and riot girls in the latter part of the decade, as well as the early nineties. And it's one that's reinforced by a subplot involving a female journalist who takes an interest in the band's story because of their in your face empowerment message. That female journalist is ridiculed and belittled by her male colleagues. So she ends up having the last laugh because her work covering the stains in this whole thing gets her a promotion to network. The problem is she turns on her subject at the end of the movie and she ends up chiding Corinne for the overt sexual imagery she's giving, calling her a bad role model. So it kind of shows the teens watching that adults really can't be trusted because they're only really ever out for themselves, right? Despite my discomfort with the film's love and seduction scenes, I enjoyed its rawness and its attempt to do something to show off more of a harsh reality of trying to become some sort of rock or pop star as opposed to, say, a slickly produced Disney Channel movie about a girl band and their rise to stardom. Of course, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains was rated R when it came out, and it would not have drawn in a Disney audience, but I think that's why it became a cult hit. So I'm curious as to what it would have been like if it had been directed by someone other than Adler, maybe even a woman. Drop the music video at the end and put Amy Heckerling at the helm, and perhaps this is a rock and roll version of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Now, the film obviously never got a sequel. We, The only hints of continuing the story that we got was the music video right at the end. And that music video is very girls just want to have fun. The movie, not the not the Cindy Lauper video, but what if Corinne decided to get more new wave slash pop and went off on a solo career? And what if she got huge? Well, Streets of Fire isn't exactly the sequel that we might want, but Ellen Aim might be the next rung on Diane Lane's pop music stardom ladder. I'll have my look at that film after this.
Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? I'll be coming for her. And I'll be coming for you, too. Sure you will. And I'll be waiting. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful... See the show, it's really good. The brutal. I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. Universal Pictures presents Michael Paré, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, and Amy Madigan in a Walter Hill film, Streets of Fire. Directed by Walter Hill, Streets of Fire was released on June 1st, 1984, and it went on to gross $8 million at the box office, making it a bona fide bomb against the $14 million or so that it was its budget. Keep in mind, of course, that it was coming out the week between Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Ghostbusters, so it didn't exactly stand a chance to make a ton of money. Overall, for 1984, it placed 91st. 
as far as the box office that year, just below the Aidan Quinn, Daryl Hannah movie Reckless and a Christy McNichol movie called Just the Way You Are. Don't go changing just to please me. By comparison, another rock and roll centric movie, Purple Rain, was the 12th highest grossing movie of the year, making $68 million. But neither Michael Pere nor Diane Lane are Prince. So there you go. Walter Hill has had a successful career as a writer, producer, and director, and he's most notable for being one of the producers of the Alien franchise, writing and directing the 48 Hours movies. And to cult film fans, he is the writer and director of 1979's The Warriors, from which this film seems to take a fair amount of inspiration. We open with title cards that tell us that we are in another place, another time, which is either New York, based on the accents of most of the characters, or Chicago, because that's where the movie was filmed. Whatever city we're in, we're in a district known as the Richmond and more specifically, we're in a music club that's full of screaming fans and Ellen Ames' manager and boyfriend, Billy Fish, who's played by Rick Moranis, is complaining that they're not going to make any money off of the gig because it's a benefit concert. Ellen's a major pop star, and she takes the stage to huge cheers, belting out one of a number of songs written and produced by Jim Steinman. That is, until a biker gang named the Bombers rush the stage and kidnap her. The crowd runs screaming out of the club, only to be met by havoc created by the bombers, who are running over as many people as possible and destroying as many, much property as possible on their way back to their headquarters in another district called the Battery. Riva, who's played by Deborah Van Valkenburg, who is one of the two daughters on Too Close for Comfort around this time, she runs a local diner and she desperately telegrams her brother to come home. Her brother, this is Michael Perret's character, Tom Cody, and he shows up at the diner just so that we can see that he's A, tough, and B, the hero of our story, because he lays waste to another group of gang members. And then we learn the reason that Reva called Tom. She's asking him to rescue Ellen because Ellen is Tom's ex-girlfriend. He is not too hip to the idea, and he decides to head out to a bar where he's served tequila by Clyde, who's played by Bill Paxton, and he meets McCoy, who's played by Amy Madigan. And I'm going to quickly pause here to say that this is one of those movies where there are a number of really familiar actors or actresses making some sort of appearance. At one point, Matthew Lawrence, who played Sal in Eddie and the Cruisers, and I think he's also in St. Earl's Fire, has a small role as a cop. Robert Townsend and Micheletti Williamson play members of a band. Egg Bagley Jr. has a small part. And Rick Rosovich, yes, Slider from Top Gun, plays another cop. It's a very 80s, hey, is that guy thing. So back to the plot. Tom goes to see Billy Fish. Billy Fish offers him money to go get Ellen. He offers McCoy a cut of the money as well, and they, all three of them, go to the battery to a place called Torchies, which is where the bombers have their headquarters. It's a biker bar type place mixed with a new wave club, and there's the woman who played Jennifer Beals' dance double dancing on the table in a G-string and a sweatshirt, and um, I guess I'll spend some time on the aesthetic of the movie after I finish the plot synopsis, because this movie has a feel to it. So yeah, so we meet Raven. He's the boss of the bombers and he's played by Willem Dafoe. He's got Ellen chained to a bed in the upper floors of the place and is getting all menacing and creepy in the way that villains in these movies tend to be. Then he goes and he plays poker or something. 
So Tom comes into the building via the roof. Billy sits in the car as the getaway driver, and McCoy walks into the club through the front door and manages to get herself into the poker game, which she holds up with a gun. It's a diversion so that Tom can rescue Ellen, which he does, and then they all get away. Well, not before Tom plays Street Avenger by taking out more than a few of the bombers. The rest of the movie is basically them trying to get back to the Richmond while being pursued by the bombers. Tom and Ellen don't exactly have a great reunion, though, as he tells her that he's basically not in it for her or her revolution. He expects to be well paid. He's in it for the money. And that breaks her heart. There's also some interlude music video thing of Ellen singing another song, and they wind up with Elizabeth Daly tagging along at the end because it's 1984, and I think there was an Elizabeth Daly quota in Hollywood. Eventually, though, they commandeer the bus of an African-American doo-wop group called the Sorrells and lead the chase through the seedier sides of the city before eventually getting back home, which is where Ellen tells Tom off. Raven shows up and he tells the cops in the Richmond that he wants to fight Tom in a street fight. The cops tell Tom to get out of town, so our hero heads to Billy's. Billy gives him his money, but he throws it back at him, telling him off, although he does keep what he said he was going to give McCoy. Once Tom leaves, Ellen chases after him and they kiss in the rain and they sleep together. Because of course they do. Now this is all building to a huge fight in the middle of the street between Tom and Raven. Tom had originally left the Richmond, but decided to go back so that he could face his enemy. And it's in this sequence, when he's trying to get back, that we get an appearance by the legendary Lynn Thigpen. Now, and the cops don't want him to show up either because they thought they were going to do it his way. But the bombers are laying waste to the cops. And when Tom shows up, they're like, well, we're going to try it your way, man. So Tom and Raven fight using like industrial hammers or something. And eventually it's one of those... Typical movie fisticuffs where the punches sound like they're going through brick walls. Tom knocks out Raven and the bombers split, especially after every single enrichment shows up with some sort of shotgun or rifle to pull on them when they decide they're going to go ahead and lay waste to the neighborhood because their leader is down. And Tom and Ellen don't get together in the end. He tells her that she's got a career to worry about and he's not about to hold her back. And he takes off for further adventures with McCoy. And the film ends with two performances, the Sorrells singing the Dan Hartman song, I Can Dream About You, and then Ellen busting out another Jim Steinman number, and that takes us to the credits. So this movie's origins are something out of a kid's fantasy, literally. Hill was coming off of 48 Hours, which was a huge hit, Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte, and basically he had a lot of capital in Hollywood, so when you have that capital, you have to strike while the iron is hot. So he, what he did was he put this movie together. He decided to make the type of movie he'd wanted to see when he was a teenager. According to the film's press kit, which is quoted on Wikipedia, Hill sought to include everything he thought was, quote, great then and which I still have great affection for. Custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuit, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets, and questions of honor. And you can see that because there is so much of this let's throw in this cool shit in the film with very little explanation as to why it's there. Like, why is everyone dressed like they're auditioning for Sha Na Na? You know, except for Ellen, who's singing 80s pop. Why is there such a plague of biker gangs? Is this supposed to be a continuation of the Warriors? 
Did something happen to make the world this way? And why does Raven even care about Ellen? I mean, I guess I can possibly see that kidnapping her at a concert to benefit the city would be a good idea for anyone who wants to basically control the city. But then he does that like weird Jabba and Leia, soon you will come to appreciate me, move. And you forget how many villains in action movies are prone to sexually assaulting their damsels in distress. Now, the focus of the film, of course, is not Ellen. Ellen's actually the MacGuffin of the film. Tom Cody is our focus. Michael Perret was coming off what would eventually be a career-defining role as Eddie Wilson in Eddie and the Cruisers. That was a film that was not a hit, but it became a cult classic because of its constant TV airings and video rentals. Now, I don't know if I can say the same for Streets of Fire. I'm sure it was an HBO heavy rotator. It may have had some second life on video, but at best it's a curiosity with I Can Dream About You on its soundtrack. And that's an 80s song that might have gotten a decent amount of play on parent-friendly radio, but is now the separate the wheat from the chaff item on an 80s name that tune bar trivia contest. Plus, let's be real, as talented as the actors who make up the Sorrells are, they are no Morris Day at the time. Perret is, well, he's good as Eddie Wilson, who in the mind of the surviving cruisers is a caricature of a rock and roll icon and rock and roll tragedy. He plays the part well, just like he did the Barbarino-like guy he played on The Greatest American Hero. But as the equalizer here, it doesn't actually work. And it's not without trying. He's a charming guy. But he is completely outmatched by Willem Dafoe, who's simultaneously giving creepy Dafoe and eating the scenery alive. And he's also outmatched by Diane Lane. Speaking of whom, getting to our subject of the episode, Lane plays Ellen as a convincing pop star in the early 80s Pat Benatar Madonna sort of way that we were seeing from Corinne and Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Streets of Fire hit theaters just as MTV was hitting its stride, whereas the previous movie was the beginning of the MTV era. And films like Flashdance were showing how the music video revolution was influential and not to be ignored. We see this in the performance pieces that they give Ellen. No, Diane Lane does not do her own singing, but they all play like an artist who is on perhaps her first or maybe her second album in the Everyone Will Remember You like this phase before she'll decide to go off in a completely different direction. So it's control era Janet, like a virgin era Madonna. Who knows? It could possibly be that a star like Ellen Aim in a city like that could go into a weird justify my love erotica sex book direction. By the way, does anyone actually have a copy of Madonna's sex book? No, seriously. This was one of those things that made for a huge controversy when it came out and Some people I knew claimed to have seen it, but I don't know if anybody I knew actually owned the book. A quick eBay search, by the way, shows that a sealed copy has gone from $225 to $350 recently. And that's a finished auction, by the way. Open copies go between $30 and $150, I guess, based on the uh, condition. I don't think any of the garage sale gloat guys are listening, but if they are, I'd be curious if you've, if you've ever seen this in the wild. Anyway, back to the movie. Streets of Fire was actually supposed to be the first in the series of Tom Cody films. But it did so poorly that the sequels never came to pass. And that's fine. 
I enjoyed it for what it was worth, but I was not clamoring for further adventures. But what I would like is another rock and roll movie starring Diane Lane. We need the third in the trilogy. It should be completely unrelated to the other two, but it needs to star her as like a former rock pop goddess who's middle-aged and is either reconciling with her fading past glory, attempting a comeback, or something that gives us a later life hero's journey arc. Diane Lane is currently 57, so that's the perfect age for it, especially when you have like plenty of 80s and 90s rock personalities who could co-star as her bandmates or make appearances. Put her on vocals with Susanna Hoffs, Courtney Love, the Wilson sisters, any member of the Go-Go's, like Jane Wheedland and Belinda Carlisle. Now, you'd have to find a role for Elizabeth Daly, who was in Streets of Fire, and apparently it was actually in Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Things. She played like a motel maid or something. So put her in there because it's Elizabeth Daly. But I am totally and completely serious about this. I mean, I, I, it shouldn't be like a mom rock movie where she's got like a teen daughter and it's a family thing. No, it needs to be like genuine and centered, centered around the question of what's it like to go from selling out the garden to relying on nostalgia tours where no one wants to hear your new stuff and will only cheer for what you sang when you were like 18 or 22 or something. And how do you deal with the combination of misogyny and ageism in the music business? We saw the sexism and exploitation in The Fabulous Stains. In Streets of Fire, this is someone who's on a pedestal, and there are those who are going to try to keep her there. Now, we need that post-pedestal fight against being an obscurity or that 80s name-that-tune trivia item. Not every artist from the 80s in a new wave band is Amy Mann, who went from Till Tuesday to a critically acclaimed solo career. Not every artist is Cindy Lauper, whose post-She's-So-Unusual career has gotten her three-quarters of a way to an EGOT. She's missing the Oscar, by the way. This movie, guys, it's right there. It's got a built-in audience of Generation Xers who would stream the hell out of it. Okay, maybe much of Generation X doesn't necessarily want to see movies that remind them how, of how they're aging, but it would still have a killer soundtrack. So... Nobody's listening to this who has pull at Hollywood. It's not going to be made, but I can dream. And that'll do it for the Diane Lane Rock and Roll Cinematic Universe. Now, join me next episode where I'll be staying with rock and pop music from the 1980s because I'll be setting my sights on corporate rock. Wayward sons will carry on. More than feelings will be had. Arms will be opened. Cities will be built. Until then... Check out the show notes in the blog, and don't forget to reach out and let me know what you think. And as always, thanks for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit 
and on Twitter at PopAff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.